Welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Journal Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, if you remember last year, we did a special Valentine's Day episode uh, featuring some of our favorite romance love stories mm-hmm. um, ever in cinema. Um, and to this day, you know, I still love most of those uh, films. You know, we have you know, Before Sunrise trilogy or the Before trilogy in general is in particular my favorite. Of course, I think we all know Isa's favorite is Eternal Sunshine mm-hmm. of the Spotless Mind. But since we already did the whole Lovey Dovey films last year, uh, we thought we'll go the, we'll go 180, do the exact opposite <laughs> thing, and, and we'll cover some anti-Valentine's films where we sort of spotlight or celebrate the best films where, shall we say, romantic idealism goes painfully awry mm. uh, in a multitude of ways. We'll be talking about uh, Blue Valentine, which is, I think, the most uh, painful or, or heart-wrenching of the four, um, alongside a more recent entry by Noah Bombok called Marriage Story. Uh, we'll also be talking about The Lobster, which is a sci-fi fantasy take on it, uh, as well as... A millennial classic, I would say. Uh, closer, mm. uh, right <laughs> at the end to cap it off. Um, before we begin, um, besides the four titles that I just mentioned, um, you have like any honorable mentions about some of your favorite anti-Valentine or anti-romance films? Oh, um, just like you, you mentioned recently, uh, Revolutionary Road, I think, is one of them. Um, mm, uh, particularly if you pair it out with Titanic, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. If, if you imagine it in a case where Jack survives, right, and they take on whole new mm-hmm. names. Yeah, I love yeah. that whole idea of continuing that story for sure. Mm-hmm. But just seeing Leo and 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 Kate like on the screen again, working together in a very very different context is uh, yep. a different kind of emotion. I think uh, they have they are at the point where like they are. They've grown as actors and all of that, and just kind of like mm. still have an amazing on-screen chemistry. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. and to definitely. see that kind of all go to shit is is both amazing and terrifying at the same time. Yes, um, I have to agree. I have a couple of honorable mentions. Uh, yeah. I don't know if if you've seen them already. Um, I think the first one you've definitely seen mm. it is uh, David Finch's Gone Girl, Ooh, yeah. uh, which is great. It yes. is a thriller. More fun version of um, the four films that we're talking about here, yeah. with um, one of the best uh, midway point twists mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you'll probably see in any film. Oh yeah! Uh, if you've not read Gillian Flynn's book *Gone Girl* or watched David Fincher's 2014 adaptation starring Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike, um, boy, you really should because it is such a great portrait of a perfect life and marriage that crumbles in the public eye. Mm-hmm. Um, my other recommendation is something I've already talked about on genre equality. It is a movie called Midsommar oh, yeah. by Ariesta, uh, who did Hereditary. Um, it is a great breakup horror um, disguised as a cult folk horror. Uh, but really, it is about um, this poor girl played by Florence Pugh mm-hmm. who um, finally, finally gets to, uh, I suppose, put her asshole boyfriend in his place right at the end of it. Oh, yeah. Um, and she feels so accepted by the community. It is a weirdly uplifting ending for such a, for such a macabre story. Uh, but yeah, I really, really love uh, Midsommar. Have you seen Midsommar? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Nice. 
Okay, yeah, it's it's one of my favorite uh, like breakup uh, anti Valentine's Day stories as well. Mm. Would you consider the Depression trilogy, as in Von, uh, Last Frontiers, Antichrist, Melancholia, and Nymphomaniac, to fit in a similar category to what we're talking about? Sure, yes, but I think that trilogy also covers so much more mm. than anti romance that it's like hard to pigeonhole it into that. La. But yes, yeah, that element of it is it is very strong in the Depression trilogy yeah. as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Last one, Troy. Like it's it tackles a lot of stuff, and and it, in you know those three dense films with a lot of themes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it definitely fits in this vibe. I think also if you if you choose to include it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. For sure. Nice. Um, w- what is okay? This is one that is supposed to be romantic. Yeah. But it is so nauseating that I think it also works as an anti Valentine's Day film. Ooh. Um, five hundred days of summer. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, we, we had a conversation about this fairly recently, right? Where we were talking about just like the popularity of Five Hundred Days of Summer when it came out, and how mm. we felt a lot of people were kind of like missing the point. Um, yes, for sure. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I think like if you watch it in this day and age, that would definitely ring much differently. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you watched it when you were like fairly young in your tw- early twenties or your late teens. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I I think even back when I watched it in, I suppose I was in poly. Um, I didn't like it then. I still don't like it now. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how it works for anyone of any age because it's such a, you know, terrible <sighs> film and like um, I don't like the temper trap. Mm, also, yeah. Um. <laughs> I think one of our if if you live in Singapore and we went to the first lane, we I think most of you probably left after Tame Impala to um you know when Temper Trap closed um yeah like I I just can't stand Temper Trap I can't stand this film it is the ultimate you know when people make fun of hipsters mm-hmm. um Five Hundred Days of Summer is the the validation of like people who make fun of hipsters yeah uh but yeah let's delve into the four films here uh as we mentioned uh let's begin with uh, Blue Valentine, which is directed by Derek uh, Siafrance. Uh, it is a relationship drama that conducts this very, I would say, harsh and, and unblinking dissection of this doomed marriage between uh, Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. Uh, Ryan Gosling plays this kind of heavy-drinking slacker, much too kind of uh, comfortable with his lack of ambition. And, and Michelle Williams is a practical wife who comes to the bitter realization that um, she needs to grow old with a man, uh, not a man-child. Uh, no matter like how you know impishly charming uh, Ryan Gosling can be, yeah. uh, it is an emotionally claustrophobic drama that is played with um, freight nerves and very raw emotions, and it serves as an unrelenting glimpse into relationship hell. Um, it could easily have devolved into, I think, sweaty, pretentious melodrama or something like that Mm -hmm. if not for the amazing actors at the helm of the material i think um in one of her long string of astonishingly (laughs) uh frightening committed performances michelle williams yes um i mean venom aside like has just had like a a long string of these type of roles particularly we we talked about her in brokeback mountain as well Mm -hmm. right yeah um she totally loses herself in this uh speaking of losers like ryan gosling is such an amiable loser um, that you kind of you know grew empathetic with his rudderless uh, existence as well, uh, but she is unable to look past his rudderless, exi- rudderless existence and kind of tires of of waiting for 
for Ryan Gosling, uh, the, the person she married to grow mm-hmm. up, you know, and, and for Gosling, M- Michelle Williams is his soulmate. Yeah. He has everything and for Williams, Gosling is good enough until he isn't. Uh, and that imbalance proves fatal as the couple's relationship reaches this debilitating endgame as we see in the film. Mm-hmm. And CN France cuts back and forth between the agonizing finale and the dreamy romantic beginning to devastating emotional effect. Um, you've recently rewatched Blue Valentine, a film I haven't seen since oh, yeah. um, the 2010s. Uh, but yeah, since you have a fresher take on it, uh, what do you think about Blue Valentine? Uh, it was it was a hard rewatch. I'm not going to lie. I think the first time around, I, I caught it. Uh, it was... Um, I caught it and then I remember hearing the story about a, a friend of mine who decided to bring <laughs> a girl on a, their first date. Oh, terrible idea. Yeah, and he decided that, you know, Blue Valentine, sure, right? Valentine's Day. It was a Valentine's mm-hmm. Day, by the way. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, so they, they didn't last very long. Let's just put it that way. Um, yeah, of course. But, yes, uh, I was thinking, okay, on, on rewatch, first of all, still as painful. Um, and mm. maybe with, like, kind of greater understanding to the thematic kind of, like, uh, discussions that the, the film is trying to have, right? Just about, like, the idea of, like, an identity that is connected to, with the person that you're with, right? And the whole mm-hmm. idea that there has to be some sort of, like, shared self-actualization that needs to take place. Yes. Otherwise, there's, there's kind of, like, no growth, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, this whole idea that at, at, at the end of the day, like, if he still loves you as much as he did when he first mm-hmm. met you, is that enough right because it, it it does feel like dean's character by and large has not changed like his feelings have not changed for her and all of that despite the circumstances having changed around them uh, mm-hmm. but is it really you know is it enough right is love enough in those cases um, mm. when we're talking about two human beings who are evolving as time passes um yep that was one of my first thoughts the other one which i I was contemplating about like the non-linear narrative uh, that we're mm. kind of going through, right? With with fantastic like cut uh, flashbacks that counterpoint the parts where we currently find the couple at, or at least in the future. Uh, at mm, least very um reminiscent of Eternal Sunshine, mm, actually. Yes, yes. Uh, but I feel like the the kind of point counterpoint that that goes on in Blue Valentine has additional dramatic and emotional impact that mm-hmm. would feel very different I think if it was told in a chronological fashion yeah, yeah and so I was just wondering if it would necessarily have hit very differently right if we mm-hmm. were to get a version that was cut in chronological order you know mm-hmm. um, having this kind of like constant in your face like this is what it used to be like you know it, it, it they had their troubles but it was sweet and all was good and then immediately cutting to like this this skeezy ass motel room right where mm. they're just working shit out in a myriad of ways and obviously it's not working like I'm not sure which one would have greater emotional impact if we got this alternate mm-hmm. version of it uh, but mm. as it stands as it is right it is hard to swallow and mm. kind of hard to stomach um, as that goes on yeah, I have a feeling that if it was played linearly, it will be similar to um, the effect that Memento had if it was played linearly. Ooh. I think the, the power comes from the juxtaposition. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Oh, yeah, Blue Valentine still to this day is one of those movies that I don't think I'm 
ever going to seek out to watch or intentionally mm. go out of my way to watch, but it still stands yep. one of one of the best films I've seen, right? When it comes to like thematically what it's trying to explore, the idea mm-hmm. of love is not enough uh, and, and, you know, love kind of gone wrong. And, mm-hmm. As is all kind of what we're discussing today. Uh, yes, yeah. For sure, like one of the sharpest, I think, uh, in terms of how um, the point it's trying to make. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is one of Ryan Gosling's best performances, actually, because mm. I feel like in recent times, uh, not not in his whole filmography, but Ryan Gosling has sort of leaned into his drive persona, the oh, yeah. <laughs> taciturn um, performances that he's been giving in, you know, that that new Armstrong a- astronaut movie. I forgot what it's called. Yeah. Our first man, um, and a bunch of others. Uh, mm-hmm. La La Land is a great exception, though. Oh yeah. But but yeah, he, this is one where he you know he actually gets to show his range, like, and, and what he used to do. Mm. Um, unlike you know, like I said, First Man or Blade Runner twenty forty nine yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And Blue Valentine, like you said, is like this warped reverse highlight reel of the most painful moments in, in, a, in a dying relationship. Mm-hmm. And it has the sting and sadness of real life yeah. uh, in, in a sense that it doesn't feel uh, overly contrived or dramatic in a fictional sense. Yeah. The effect is powerful um, and, and quite overwhelming. And But, you know, even at its most intense, Blue Valentine doesn't quite devolve into a melodrama. No. Um, and I think the structure allows the director to contrast Cindy and Dean's tortured present day mm-hmm. lovemaking sessions with those of better times when they shared, you know, ecstasies, I guess, freely and openly. Yeah. Uh, unlike this private one in this skeezy motel room, as you said, you know. Um, I love the room space. I love, like, the claustrophobic <laughs> nature of it, yeah. you know. Um, I think the passion between the two actors is quite... I mean, the chemistry is is, is insane. It's, like, incandescent, but... Yeah. Like even in the best of time, I think uh, the director finds you know this this little seeds of destruction even in mm. their good moments, mm-hmm. um, and and how it will blossom or I, I suppose blossom is the wrong word or how it will grow into this destructiveness at the end. Yeah. Um, I think I like that they showed Dean as this devoted father and husband, you know, uh, but also his chronic immaturity and lack of ambition is apparent yes. from like the beginning of the relationship, mm-hmm. and Cindy just chooses to look past it. Um, just as she does with the marital discord within her own family. Mm-hmm. And I think because Blue Valentine announces itself as a breakup movie from the start, yeah. um, the most tender and happy moments between Cindy and Dean tend to be among the most devastating as well. You know, because you know uh, with a poignance uh, that this this happy moments don't last. And breakups naturally bring a couple's romantic history rushing to the fore. And the mind plays back... To, you know, the ugly fights and missteps, to say nothing of the uh, sweetest memories, but in showing us that history as it accumulates, um, Cien France uh, gives the film a heartbreaking resonance. And yeah, yeah uh, Blue Valentine's, you know, setting in the past and in the present, or, um, you know, it sets this course for a collision and you feel the full weight of its impact, you know. Um, any other thoughts on on Blue Valentine? Yeah. It's it's a film I love, but like you said, like I would <laughs> probably rewatch it anytime soon. Um, it's it is fascinating how they decide to split the visual difference between like pre marriage and post marriage, right? Uh, shot mm-hmm. on two completely. I I think they were using like um super eights before, um marriage, and then they were using like red uh reds after. So you have this like kind of very soft kind of like 
uh, feel to it with very kind of like saturated color palettes that feel very rich and warm and inviting and then cut into the present day where the lighting completely changes with the use of a lot of like artificial lights um, yes you know and and a, a lot of sharpness to the image that's there sort of bringing it into like this hyper real presence uh, where the camera mm. is an additional lens that that focuses you on on the conflict that you see playing out I thought that was yep. incredibly uh, smart and of course at the same time like a very um, a very telling kind of like visual lead for the audience as, as you kind of go along right I, I think that was something I didn't notice on my first watch when I watched it in the mm. cinemas uh, re-watching yeah. it however like that became like a little more clear maybe maybe just because you know um watching it at home and having like a HD screen and all of that does add to that feeling um, mm-hmm. but yeah that's something I don't think necessarily popped out at me the first time I watched it uh, maybe because I was also like kind of like not emotionally prepared for what I was watching um, yep yep yeah uh, and on another note since we're talking about Gosling and we're talking about like honourable mentions for anti-Valentine's movie I think mm. uh, Lars and the Real Girl which just popped up yes. in my head mm. uh, would prob- I would probably put it under this category as well yes yes it's a great honourable mention uh, another one with Ryan Gosling um, one of his better best performances I would I say agree. also in Lars and the Real Girl mm-hmm. um, very underseen and underrated film that never quite got any sort of like Oscar attention or whatnot. Yeah. Um, outside of the art house, you know, community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I fucking love Last in a Real Goal. Yeah. Um, Blue Valentine is painful watch. You can, <laughs> you know, you can, you can rent it on uh, iTunes and Amazon and stuff like that. It is whew, um, a tough <laughs> one, but I think one of the best ones that we're talking about, uh, in th- especially in terms of performance yeah. and in terms of script. Yeah, for sure. Um, it is quite, uh, it has this NC-17 rating, which I don't think it deserves. Um, just for that one scene, right? Uh, yeah, just for that one scene. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one scene has sort of like torpedoed the reputation of this film. Uh, and this is a good way to sack into the next film, Marriage Story, <laughs> because I feel that... Um, Blue Valentine didn't have to cope with this. It wasn't in the social media era. Yeah. But Marriage Story had to cope with a social media era. Mm-hmm. And the memification of one particular climactic scene in Marriage Story portrayed the film as something that it is not. Yeah. Um, the, the scene, uh, obviously the scene of um, Adam Driver screaming, which has been memed to great effect. And, and don't get me wrong, like I love that meme. It's funny. <laughs> Particularly uh, because, you know, it, um, of all the Star Wars memes that came out of it as well. Yeah. But... That is not what the film is. No. It is not Blue Valentine. It is not two people screaming at each other the whole time. It is something... It is one scene. It is two minutes in a two-hour film. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't represent what the film is. Um, Marriage Story, to me, when it first came out... I'm a big fan of Noah Baumbach because I feel like of all the writers that pretend to write conversational dialogue, Noah Baumbach yeah. does it the best. He has... Uh, he kind of pioneered uh, what is called mumblecore. Not the rap <laughs> mumblecore. But back in the early 2000s with the squid and the whale and yeah. Francis Ha and things like that, he pioneered a, a style of dialogue called Mambocore with, with a lot of us and ums and ahs, you know, and that kind of thing. Very naturalistic dialogue. Yeah. And Marriage Story is the Noah Bombeck movie that I've been waiting for for a long time. It's better than good. It is more than just accomplished. Mm-hmm. After 10 films over like 25 years of filmmaking, I think at long last, Bombeck's breakthrough into the dramatic realm is, you know, um, at once funny and scalding and stirring and built around two bravura performances mm. from um, two great actors that uh, are incredibly sharp and incredibly stirring. 
um, and and just you know very human. It's it's the work of a major film artist finally coming to his own, uh, and especially into the mainstream. One yeah. who shows that he can capture life in all its emotional detail and complexity, and in the process make a piercing statement about how our society uh, works now. And the movie is is a drama of divorce, of course, and. Uh, when it's over, you may feel like you know the lives it's about as well as you know your own. Mm. Yet, Marriage Story isn't just about the tale of a marital breakdown and its aftermath. It's a film about divorce, how it operates, what it means, the legal red tape around it, the larger consequences around it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, TV in particular like confronts this kind of thing, but it's in a very melodramatic, unrealistic way. Uh, this movie is not though. It is more similar to a film like Cream of Screamer, oh, which yeah. is also a, a great um honorable mention actually. Since I'm on that <laughs> uh route, um yeah, if you haven't seen Cream of Screamer, you should watch it. It's on Netflix actually. Um, and Marriage Story sees the end of marriage as both a cause of mourning and bittersweet comedy. Uh, the thing is, the relationship between the two protagonists. Just because they're divorced doesn't mean that the relationship is ending. The relationship is changing. Yeah. And this is a movie about the evolution of that relationship. Uh, and it is something to behold. And to get a story like this right requires a sense of, I guess, the comical and the absurd, which no one book is known for, alongside the devastating and marriage story delivers. Mm. Um, it plays out like this duet, one that we just one that we're just happening to catch at the moment, uh, where the key is changing, you know, and, and the discord quite hasn't uh, hasn't quite resolved, you know, and and the movie begins with one of the most like you know, touching monologues I've ever heard, you know, where the where we see the two sides of what seems like a happy marriage. Charlie, yeah. played by uh, Adam Driver, is listing out all the things that he loves about Nicole, played by Scarlett Johansson, uh, and Nicole is returning the favor. Like it's very sweet, uh, and it's clear that the two still think highly of each other despite the dissolution of their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, except, and then you learn that they're in a marriage <laughs> counselor's office and. Nicole is so pissed off at Charlie that she doesn't even want to read her list out loud, which is, you know, gripped in her in her tightening hands, right? And nothing in particular, it as it transpires, is is ripping Charlie and Nicole apart. We don't understand. Yeah. Uh, but they've almost broken up before. You know, friends in their theatre group <laughs> gossip amongst themselves about whether the split will stick this time. The thing is, it will. Uh, and that's what I love about this film. It's not about a relationship ending bitterly. It is a bittersweet evolution of a relationship mm-hmm. from marriage to maybe friends uh, as amicable as uh, as a divorce can be because I think like a lot of divorces are portrayed as like this kind of bitter shouting matches yeah. um, but Charlie and his wife don't think of each other as villainous mm. like at all and neither does the film uh, and it's great uh, it sounds to me like there's a bit of um there's a bit of autobiographical nature in this, yeah. just because it's it's it feels so real, and it, it must have, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, what what do you think about Marriage Story? Uh, before I get to that, um, didn't yep. Bombard kind of like deal with his own parents' divorce in um Squid, the Squid and, and the Will? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah so yep, he is, absolutely. This isn't like un untreaded territory for him necessarily, mm-hmm. either. Oh man, Marriage Story. Um. As, as a child of divorce myself, uh, mm. this was this was hard to watch. Um, you know, like there were moments in time where, uh, uh, even though, oh man, what's the kid's name necessarily? Uh, I forgot, but yeah, yeah. Go on, I, I we know who you're talking yeah. about. 
actually he doesn't actually have a name I think oh Henry yes that's Henry, right Henry yeah. yeah so like I, I don't know if Henry kind of picks up and uh, like, we never kind of get his point of view you know he uh, he's there uh, he helps move the plot along certainly right but mm. they're just like these little little things that you kind of pick up I think as a kid right in a, in, in a household of a marriage that is on his last legs um, you know and both uh, Driver and Johansson are such amazing actors um, and just the kind of nuance that they bring here and then in addition to that the fact that it's grounded in the fact that you know they, they work together at a theatre company and that you know Johansson's character Nicole is a former um, kind of teen star turned, turned theatre actress um, mm-hmm. the amount of restraint I think is what impresses me the most Right, there are yep. moments when it feels like it could devolve into a shouting match. There are moments it feels like it just one of them could burst into tears, and then you know it's going to be melodramatic from there. I don't think we ever get that necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and is and the movie is better for that because a lot of the time, like circumstantially, you're not going to be able to like do that in real life, which makes it feel like you know more natural, more human, more true to form of what mm. a reality looks like, which also at the same time makes it extremely painful to watch. Yeah. As it kind of taps on like whatever past trauma that we might have had with dying relationships and so on. Um, mm. So that's kind of like the first thing. Um, it is an incredible... Uh, I-, I love the way Bombok steps out of the way of the actors uh, and the character mm-hmm. work that they are doing on screen. I feel like both... Uh, Nicole and Charlie get a lot of time to breathe. Um, definitely, I do feel like um, Nicole does get the lion's share of the screen time for sure, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's that's uh, kind of unsurprising. You need to like kind of adopt a single, you know, kind of like main story there. Also, shout out mm. to Laura Dern again, another kind of like amazing supporting role. Um, mm. as Nora. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Um, she was nominated twice that year. For one for her role in uh, Little Women, and one for her role here. Yeah. Uh, one of the fir- one of the few instances where an actress was nominated twice for best supporting actress in the same category. Mm. It's insane. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, like it's it's Laura Dern, right? Love her to death. Mm-hmm. Um, so 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 good. Um, you know, but I was just kind of thinking, like, especially the first time I watched this, true, when it first came out. Like, how much of my own personal emotions were shaped by not so much the story of these two, you know, um, f- go soon to be ex husband and wife, right? Kind of going through that and negotiating and navigating that. But how much my emotional mm. journey watching this movie was shaped by the legality of it, right? Like, when the lawyers come mm. into play and the things that kind of play out within the courtroom and then the custody fight and all of that, like, I I am so riled up by those things, you know, and then suddenly counterpointed by the fact that they mm. have this this moment where like this is ridiculous. Let's sit down, right? Mm. And the tone of that conversation is so vastly different that it changes mm. everything immediately, you know. And I um I mean I don't know if it's it's like a commentary necessarily on like how the culture surrounding divorce or the the legal system surrounding divorce is automatically antagonistic um from mm, um it i think the real villains of the film are not um charlie or nicole yeah. it is the industry of divorce yeah yeah because it feels a lot that way right like we get um yeah like charlie's first lawyer i can't remember his name 
uh, mm-hmm. the older chap. You know, like yeah. his approach seems like that. That's that. That's more in line with what the couple wants. Number one, and, yeah. or at least it seems that way. And um, the his his entire goal to kind of like de-escalate and find common ground. Uh, you know, mm. and kind of resolve the conflict in a way that doesn't require them to go through all the ridiculous kind of character assassinations that we see later on. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really felt more right, but also at the same time, extremely out of place um, yeah. because of the direction that just in general, this conflict was going to take place uh, in, in the legal uh, sphere, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. I mean, like, on top of all of the amazing kind of like character work and, you know, just like examining and re-examining, renegotiating who you are as people and what your relationship is with, with a child in the mix, right? Then you have this uh, whole other layer uh, of, of commentary and, and just like playing out the dramatic fashion in which divorce happens and how that mm-hmm. shapes how we feel despite the fact that it's not necessarily what you know, the, the people involved want or necessarily feel as well. Yes, yes, yeah, um, exactly. It's uh, It was going so well until the lawyers got involved. Like, and I think oh, yeah. that's, that's the point of the film. Um, as you mentioned earlier on, um, you know, Charlie is, unlike Nicole, Charlie is this theater director, right? Yeah. And, and kind of a true New Yorker at heart. Um, and his latest play is transferring to Broadway. And Nicole was the star. She was this former it indigal before and now she's transferred to um, theater mm. um, and and she is the star of uh, Charlie's new play and although they were married for years she's now moving from their home of New York to her hometown of LA to shoot a pilot yeah um, she's bringing their eight-year-old son with her and though that could have just been you know this temporary stay the sh- you know show business couples sort of do the bicoastal thing all the time uh, but her decision to finally go sort of pushes some long simmering problems to boil over um, I think the New York Los Angeles divide is like this handy American metaphor for the <laughs> ensuing d- divorce. Yeah, you know, they're, they're two cities that aren't really all that different. They're filled with people who have similar aspirations mm-hmm. and a common language and shared ties and history. But New Yorkers and Angelinos, I guess, uh, can't stand each other for some reason with very little provocation. Yeah. Um, and the same is true for Charlie and Nicole who go through conversations with relatives and lawyers uh, and unpack all the reasons that they both got together and fell apart. There's the meetings with the lawyers who are far more combative mm-hmm. than Charlie and Nicole are, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and home visits to determine custody and the family members who side with one another and, and the battles over who will live where and when, who gets to take what, the shape of what life looks like. Yeah. That begins to complicate everything also. And most of the comedy comes courtesy of these kind of um, Kafka-esque machinations of the divorce <laughs> industry, you know, the divorce industry. Yeah. Uh, and disentangling two lives requires a different kind of enmeshment in a legal and financial system that is designed to suck at them and to and to suck at their bank accounts mm-hmm. and to to dry and dissolve their love, uh, which still remains although they're they're getting divorced. You know, yeah. it is a system focused on winning, not on fairness. Uh, but you know nobody wins in a divorce, just like nobody wins in a wedding. It's both of you are supposed to win, right? Charlie and Nicole are both right about each other's faults. That's the key, and both are right about each other's good traits mm-hmm. and bad traits. Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of their split is is still the core of their connection. You know, if not as spouses, then still as partners at least of raising Henry, yeah. right? They're they're partners of a kind. 
in that way, marriage story is almost authentic to a painful fault. Yeah. Like most of anyone who's ever been in a relationship of any length will find themselves wondering at some point in marriage story how Noah Bombok got a hold of their like inner monologue. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in, in other in other movies like The Squid and the Whale and Margot at the Wedding, he's often presented the complications of marriages and divorces and shifting family dynamics as a rueful part of living, yeah. part of, mm-hmm. I guess, the dark comedy of existence, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and here he opens up the, the wounds relationship, uh, the, the wounds that relationships leave for our examination. Uh, and perhaps why, that's why like Driver and Johansson's scenes together are among, among the film's most uh, heartbreaking. Mm. You know, that moment when someone says something you know they can never take back is gutting. But it's in their individual scenes yeah. that you can actually get a sense of how powerfully they're performing with, you know, these ripples of emotion and energy revealing conflicts going on beneath the words. Uh, they're still just, you know, tr- just finding to, uh, they're just trying to narrate or reframe their lives according to their words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you join your life to someone else, they become a part of you too. And frig- figuring out who... Uh, who you are in the aftermath requires looking back and understanding the past in a new way. Yeah. Um, and as the story, this quote-unquote marriage story, they, like resolves into its next phase. I think both Charlie and Nicole have scenes involving musical performances, both of which uh, <laughs> backwards look at love and its abrasions. And the numbers are very different, but they're kind of from the same show. Um, so marriage story is like, you know, very tunefully makes its points in those musical sequences. Yeah. Um, Charlie and Nicole's futures aren't on the same path, but they're still parallel. And not only because they have a son to raise together, uh, but because they still have this lingering respect for each other, mm. at least. You know, uh, mm. For a while, it seems as if their relationship will only end in flames, uh, much like Blue Valentine, but you know, it's just a phase in their marriage and, and what, just you know, one more song in this, in, in, in this show. Um, it's great. It's the most honest representation of, I think, a divorce I've seen. Yeah. Um, perhaps more honest than even you know Blue Valentine or other films of this ilk, uh, just because it's so real. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of Noah Bombok in here, um, especially um, the autobiographical nature of it, especially the way that he doesn't paint his ex partner as a villain, yeah. um, but rather you know sees their good traits and bad traits and his own faults and his own good traits uh, makes this a very even handed film that is so much more than. The meme suggests. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. The meme certainly yeah. does this movie and injustice for anyone who don't doesn't eventually go to watch it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, any final thoughts about uh, *Marriage Story* and its oh. uh, its <laughs> amazingness before before we move on? Uh, I I think like this is one of those things, right? That is on Netflix that nobody watches, and I'm wondering why. Right, because <laughs> we get a ton of trash on Netflix. Like we've complained a thousand times before. I know yep. necessarily people don't go on Netflix to have a like emotional trip like you get with Marriage Story. Um, mm-hmm. But ultimately, the film is about, is, is about its own kind of hope, right? Like the hope of like moving on and refinding yourself and then there being common ground after a traumatic separation, right? Mm. Um, you know, and uh, there is good in that, I think. Uh, well at least mm-hmm. there is for me personally so if you guys haven't caught Marriage Story and uh, you can steal yourself for it um, if you're alone this Valentine's Day then you know it's on yeah. Netflix it's, it's a readily within reach yes yes yeah, definitely it is um, one of the best films that peels back the truth about marriage layer by layer yeah. and it's also about the system of divorce and how it operates and you know it's just this one big messed up 
Chit Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also powerfully subtle. Um, and and as flawed as the divorce process is, it becomes the vehicle through which you know, Charlie and Nicole confront the underlying reality of their marriage. Yeah. Um, Bombuck's screenplay is as brilliant as it's ever been. Uh, never falters, never hits the wrong note. Um, he has come up with a smart, witty, saddened, and and very searching, internally searching characters whose ability to articulate their feelings is never less than lifelike. Mm. Uh, and he writes scenes that are just so verbally truthful. Um, the supporting actors are all great, as as we mentioned, like Loredan especially is a um, standout. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a really, really truthful film that you should go out of your way to watch and one of 2020's best releases. Mm. 2019, 20, sorry, 2019's best releases. Uh, one of Adam Driver's best performances oh, yeah, as well. For sure. Uh, for sure. I think this is an easy highlight for Adam Driver. For Skajo, who has a much longer filmography, yeah. I, don't, I don't know whether this is the best performance, uh, but one of her many best performances. I think th- this performance is unique, though, within her filmography. I don't... Yep. Yeah, I don't quite remember anything quite like it. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's great to see like she's adding even more range to a already impressive like career. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, what would you say is her best uh, performance? Ooh, that's kind of rough. Uh, under the skin, probably. Yeah, under the skin is probably one of her most restrained, mm. but at the same time effective performances, doing a lot to be very little. Yep. Similar to what she did in her, you know, big breakout performance in uh, Lost in Translation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, go for Paul Earring. I think it's oh, yeah. quite a s- similar thing that she did there. Yeah. Uh, lots of other great stuff like that she's there. If you've not seen Ghost World, it's really good as well. Although she's not the star in it, yeah. but you know, that's the first time I saw her. She's great in Matchpoint. Uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Oh, yes. Um, her, uh, just as her voice, mm-hmm. is really great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, lots of good stuff. She had a great performance in Juju Rabbit as well. Yeah. Um, so if you only know her as like Black Widow, I think you should delve into her filmography because like, she's done a lot of really, really good things yeah, as well. Okay. Uh, outside of the superhero realm, I mm-hmm, guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, let's move on to something a little lighter. It <laughs> is uh, a sci-fi satire comedy. Um, it is a quote-unquote love story set in the near future where single people, according to the rules of their city, yeah. are arrested and transferred to the hotel. There, once in the hotel, they are obliged to find a matching mate in 45 days. If they fail, they are transformed into an animal of their choosing and released into the woods. Mm. Um, wild concept. It uh, follows a desperate man as he escapes from the hotel to the woods where the quote-unquote loners live uh, and, falls in love with, uh, and falls in love with one of the loners, uh, one of the leaders of the loners, um, although it's against their rules. Um, this is by one of my favorite 21st century auteurs, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, yeah. who has the most unique style I've ever seen uh, since Charlie Kaufman, actually. Mm-hmm. He has such a very unique... I can't even describe it. I've not seen anything like it. You know, I can't equate it to any director that has come in the past or any director that is in the present. Yeah. Yorgos Lanthimos is his own thing. He has his own style of writing and dialogue and shooting things that just is so bizarre and weird and singular. Uh, this is the best rom-com uh, about uh, Valentine's mm. that you can find because, you know, of its messaging underneath, you know, yeah. uh, this whole society forces you to to uh, um, to a monog- to monogamy or, or couplehood or coupledom. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and yeah, you know, like dating is plenty compl- complicated as things stand. But, you know, <laughs> like suppose uh, this film like makes it even more bizarre and complex. Yeah. Uh, and Colin Farrell is great in this. Uh, and this is one of the weirdest things that Colin Farrell has ever done. Yes. Uh, and yeah, you should definitely, definitely go see it. Um, yeah. How long has it been since you've seen The Lobster? Uh, what, are your, what are your memories of it? Okay. Oh, man. Um, I remember being obsessed with the poster. Right, like just the design of it was was something that like uh I think in 2015 it kind of like popped a fair bit, uh for me yeah. and that immediately got me interesting and then on top of that, uh the premise was fascinating right before I got into that, I do remember the first time that I watched it, uh and again mm-hmm. kind of like rewatching it um for us to talk today, uh just the amount of disbelief that you are expected to suspend for a given movie like this definitely ranks up there. Right, and every time you said, "Okay, sure, I can accept that as like conceptually, right? Like conceptually, intellectually, I can ac- accept that as part of the premise of the movie," and then something else absurd gets added to that, and then something else absurd gets added on top of that, and then something else absurd also gets on- added on top of that, and it reaches mm-hmm. to the point whereby, like, it's a whole bunch of absurd rules um, that you are slowly introduced to that gives you the feeling of like you you kind of reach the point whereby you are all in right it's like sure yeah. right i've committed this much i've suspended this much disbelief right sure do whatever i don't care anymore just tell me how this ends uh necessarily uh, yes, it, it it also it's it's like real life you yeah. know like you're born and you're introduced into all these seemingly absurd rules and by the end they stop being upset to you. you know? Yeah. You just you just buy into it. You just buy into what society wants you to buy into. Yeah, right. And like all the way to the end of the story, right? And guys, not necessarily spoiler information. This has been out since 2015. Um, yeah. All the way up to the end, right? Like being free of all that, having run away from all of that. Like there are still things that these characters don't, uh, it doesn't occur to them that it's absurd, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that in and of itself makes The Lobster such a fascinating movie just because it asks so much from the audience. Um, yeah. That it's kind of uh, kind of crazy, you know? Um, yes. I, I remember mentioning to you, right, when we were kind of discussing the rundown for this particular episode about how annoyed mm. I get when I see people putting The Lobster as their favorite movie on their dating profiles. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, like, it feels... Uh, it feels like a... like a fairly modern day tragedy for you to not quite understand what the movie is about <laughs> or the point yeah, that it's trying yeah. to make right to see it on someone's mm. Tinder profile I'm just like oh dear oh you poor thing uh, yeah it's like how all these guys uh, love Fight Club la. yeah exactly exactly yeah like like Fight Club is a film about toxic masculinity and it has somehow become the emblem for toxic masculine people yeah. uh, <laughs> to celebrate themselves it's weird you know yeah yeah so I, I never quite I don't think when I watched The Lobster in 2015 like way before like you know Tinder and dating apps become uh, became like a huge thing mm-hmm. like that it, that would become its eventual problem um, that this kind of like indie very strange film right that is completely art house would be a thing uh, on dating profiles um, mm-hmm. but yeah yeah I, I hope that some of these are, are you know um, uh, self-aware and ironic but you know, you never know with people. Uh, yes. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, I really loved the. You know, 
I really love that David has so like bought into it that you know like he knows the drill because yes. his dog is his brother, yes. right? You know, like he knows the drill. This isn't so, like a Black Mirror or Twilight Zone situation where he's thrust into something and he doesn't know what's happening, oh, yeah. right? Like he knows it, and and everyone in the society is so like blasé and assumes like this compat like that compatibility means like for like, yeah. right? So there's this guy played by Ben Whitshaw who <laughs> wants to attract a girl who gets nosebleeds. Uh, and then banks his head against walls to make his own nosebleed. Yeah. There's a guy uh, played by John C. Riley with a lisp who looks with a girl with a speech impediment. So, you know, like uh, this whole idea that, you know, like for like um, is weird. And, and David briefly tries to ingratiate himself with this heartless woman by oh, faking yeah. indifference to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and although there is knowledge that things may not work out, you know, David still does it anyway. Yeah. And then David discovers this alternative of sorts, right? In the woods surrounding the hotel are like a lot of unusual animals, camels, yeah. ponies, flamingos, uh, but also this revolutionary bunch of loner escapees. And for recreation, the hotel guests hunt them with tranquilizer darts, uh, with each bag loner getting the hunter an extra day of, I guess, beasthood avoidance. Yeah. And the loners who prize um, lonerlessness as strongly as the rest of society prizes them have their own secret set of rules, mm-hmm. uh, which turn out to be just as peculiar and simultaneously funny and cruel as those of the society that they're rebelling against. Yeah. Um, I think Yorgos Lanthimos is very, very fond of these weird, hermetically sealed satires like this, where logic is rigidly internal. You know, there is no like external reference for the logic. The logic that exists in this film is only in this film. Yeah. And the results of the following, of, of following that logic are obviously strange. Um, the Lobster is his first film in English, although I would highly recommend you catch his other films as well. Mm-hmm. And it plays cleverly with the compatibility assumptions behind, say, single groups or online dating sites. You know? yeah. uh, and I guess it's hard to tell um, how he feels about either idea, but he does, you know, sharply deconstruct both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of the best uh, I guess modern satires I've ever seen, and it has a concept so fresh and so original that it makes Black Mirror look like very derivative. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Lobster came before Black Mirror, right? That's the uh, actually no, no. Uh, the first two seasons of Black Mirror pre Lobster. It came before the Netflix Black Mirror. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. 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 What were your What were your kind of like favorite kind of parts of of, of the Lobster scene wise? Um. My favorite part, to be honest, it is weird, but like my favorite part was the trying to understand what this world is because I didn't read the synopsis when I first watched yeah. it. Uh, I watched this in, in the bandwagon office when, when I first um, was working there. Uh, so no idea what it was. So, you know, the whole process of trying to learn a new world and its rules is the best for me. And the way that Yogo Santimos introduces this world in a very sort of like matter-of-fact fashion yeah. with characters who are not None of them are designed to be a proxy. There is no like, you know, like Ellen Page character, er, Ellen Page's character in Inception yeah. right, is your proxy to a weird world. And then everything is explained to her and therefore explained to the audience. Yeah. Like none of that happens here. You just have to like learn by inference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is really like the broad, like broadly, like, that is my favorite part of the film. Like how it makes you work to understand oh, it. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily like something like that. But I, I, I particularly love it. I don't like being spoon-fed things. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel I feel, but again, it is it is work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and it, it takes some time to get there. Uh, but still, I love love this film. There are a couple of scenes that are, like kind of always stand out to me. Um, the strangeness of introducing the idea that uh, masturbation is banned, but yep. edging is uh, edging is compulsory, is mm. insane. It is insane to me where it is introduced within the film itself, right? And mm-hmm. how it inserts itself into your consciousness as an audience member while trying to hold like the world building up to that point is kind yep. of breaking, you know? It's kind of like mind-breaking. I'm just like, what? Seriously? Okay, cool. Yep. Let's let's see kind of where this goes. Um, the choking on the olive scene is insane. Mm. Um, and and that, that stayed with me kind of for like a very, very long time. Uh, shout out to Olivia Coleman who yet again also great in this. Is, plays an amazing role as the hotel manager. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, kind of like nuts. Love Olivia Coleman. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we actually like gone through this whole review about mentioning Raquel Weiss, uh, Raquel oh, Weiss, yeah. who is also really, really great yes. in this as well. Yes. Um, universally um, capable cast, mm. uh, but it's of course, you know, held uh, or at least anchored by Colin Farrell, who... Yeah. Uh, as, as similar to a lot of the performances that we've mentioned, mm. one of his best performances here as well. Yeah. Probably the most unique film that Colin Farrell has ever been in. Yeah. Uh, certainly not the most unique film that Yogos Lantimos has done. <laughs> um, if you think this is weird, like watch his other stuff. Like this is, this is. If anything, this is the gateway drug to Yogos Lantimos. This oh, is yeah. his. Um, this is his uh, Eternal Sunshine. I would say, like you know, to if if you think like Eternal Sunshine is weird, like. You haven't seen Charlie Kaufman. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this is the this is a great entry point into Yogos Lantimos. Not for everyone, nope. but for people who want something different and tired by you know the same old rom coms and everything else. Uh, the Lobster is is for you. Um, I almost wish I didn't have to give you the premise for the film and yeah. like allow you to find out what it is, but for the purposes of the review, I had to. Uh. Yeah. Um. Finally, let's go back to what I would see it. It's a millennial classic. Mm. Um, it is particularly resonant for people in their 30s now because of when they saw it. Yeah. Um, it is... Boy, I rewatched this recently. It is not as good as I remember. Yeah. But I, remem- I remember it like making a huge impression in my life. I think this is very similar to when we talked about Shutter. Mm. Like how, what we thought about it then versus what we think about it now. Yeah. But when it came out, it was so bitingly funny and it felt like this honest look at modern relationships that I've never seen in cinema before. Um, Closer is essentially the story of four strangers, uh, their chance meetings and instant attractions and their casual betrayals of each other. It's a love quadrangle, uh, essentially. Uh, And Mike Nichols' movie about, you know, four people who I guess richly deserve one another. Mm. Uh, They are fascinated by the game of love and seduced by the idea of seduction itself. Um, they play at being sincere. They play at having truthful relationships, which are lies in almost every respect, um, except in their desire to sleep with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all smart, or all four are smart and ferociously articulate, like adept at seemingly forthright and sincere um, verbal exchanges, even in their most shameless deceptions. Yeah. Um, the truth, uh, one says, without it, we're animals. Actually, truth causes them more troubles than it saves. Because they seem compelled to be most truthful about the ways in which they have been untruthful, um, there is this. There's a difference between confessing you've cheated because you feel guilty and seek forgiveness, and confessing it merely to cause pain. Mm. And these four people want to cause pain. 
Uh, the movie stars in order of appearance are now big time blockbuster stars: Jude Law, Natalie Portman, Julia Roberts, and Clive Owens. <laughs> uh, they all are great in this, and they play characters that they've never played before up until that point. Yeah. Uh, and this is a romance film that we've never seen on screen up until that point. And I think as um, I guess the Sopranos of this type of romance relationships uh, <laughs> m- films. You yeah. Know? You know, Sopranos wasn't perfect, but without the Sopranos, like, would we have The Wire or? Nope. Breaking Bad and Mad Men and things like that. No. Um, and I think the closer like fulfills that role for me for anti-Valentine's film. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh what what, what do you think about uh closer? Yeah, so I, I started on rewatching this recently. Like closer is something that I rewatched a lot, like especially in the mm-hmm. year uh I'm gonna say like up to the early 2010s, right? Every mm-hmm. once in a while someone would say, Oh, let's watch closer, right? And yeah, still was very taken by that. By and large, however, rewatching it this time round, I didn't make it through half the movie. First of all, because yeah. I realized I remember a lot of it, and I also realized that it isn't as amazing as I uh, amazing. Remember it, yeah, right? not as um, I don't even think amazing. Like it didn't quite have the same sort of impact or resonance, uh, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, yep. the characters were a lot felt a lot more annoying. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm not really sure why. That's something I think I think uh, I still need to kind of process. I think like with age and and having more life experiences, right, and trying to see it from the point of view, like essentially, very essentially, as good as the movie is and was, um, when it came out, um, these are a bunch of assholes. Very honestly, um, yeah, yeah. I I think they're supposed to be annoying. We just didn't understand that when we yeah, were younger. Yeah, right. Like there was a sort of I, it, it could have been just the kind of like polished visual effect and aesthetic that it have with these like incredibly intelligent and beautiful people, you know, just kind of going about that thing. Uh, but when you remove all of that sheen, right, um, the story in and of itself, like as fascinating as it was to us back then and still is to some degree, um, the, the context of it changes as you get older, I feel. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, whereas this does have the problem of glamorizing relationships, like the ones that they pursue and or destroy. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just like oh, you know what? Honestly, like I'm not sure I want this kind of drama, even in my entertainment necessarily. Yeah. Um, but still, it has given us some iconic scenes, some iconic lines that mm-hmm. people still quote to this day. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, like if you pay attention to Hollywood's rom-coms, mm-hmm. the interaction between men and women is all about, you know, love and companionship. The ideals of, of romance la, is what Hollywood is kind of perpetuating on you. Yeah. Um, what Closer does, I suppose, better than the other three films <laughs> uh, is, you know, is subvert that philosophy. In Closer, romance is about power. Mm-hmm. Uh, Closer starts like a nice romantic drama with a couple of meet cutes, yeah. you know. Um, that you know, like it's, but it then it just rots and it rots everything from the inside out. It is, it isn't just the relationships that, that curdle, but the characters and their in- interactions become bitter and cynical. Um, sex is used frequently as as tools in power struggles and one upsmanship games and. Like, although the word love is mentioned a few times, mm. it has little place in this film. It is the ultimate anti-love film yeah. where emotions and weaknesses are exploited by others. Um, with Closer, I think director Mike Nichols 
uh, and um, screenwriter Patrick Marble, who I think adapted this from his play, mm-hmm. um, have ventured into some very, very twisted territory with their uh, in terms of subverting the ideology of love. Yeah. Uh, it is very, very grim. Like, you know, um, on the surface, I guess, closer seems and like a story about two couples whose infidelities rip them apart. But really, it's not. You know, all of them are terrible people mm-hmm. who, as I mentioned, truly deserve each other. They are, <laughs> they are ugly on the inside as they are beautiful on the outside. Their betrayals and infidelities, all of that just serves to prove what terrible people they are. Yeah. Um, from a physical standpoint, Closer is not a violent film. No. From an emotional standpoint, it is a violent film. Uh, and Nicole, Nichols doesn't like pull his punches. You would leave the theater shaken by its you know, um, dialogue. Like The film is most notable for its frank dialogue, right? Yeah. There is plenty of profanity and a lot of interesting observations. Um, these characters speak with, an, with a kind of vocabulary and style that is very heightened. Mm. Um, it is not the naturalistic style that you'll find in a Noah Baumbach film. It is yeah. more of a closer to an Aaron Sorkin film. Yeah. Um, it is very talky and um, in a smart way that calls attention to itself. Um, but you you never feel like the, the characters are talking to hear their own words or fill up screen time. Like, they are making points, too. Mm. Um, and nevertheless, those unaware of the story, uh, you know, it began its life as a play. You'll be, you won't be surprised to learn this fact because it is very stagey, yeah. the dialogue. Yeah. Um, yet, the rawness of the emotions, and this is where the actors uh, play their part, mm-hmm. keep us from noticing how how few sets there are, how stagey the dialogue is, how little, quote-unquote, conventional action occurs. Um, the film sort of loves turning the tables on everyone. <laughs> the, the users become victims and vice versa. Innocence is corrupted and, and corruption learns too late that there is no return path. Um, Alice, who is like the, you know, the most naive member of the ensemble, yep. uh, despite being a stripper by, uh, by profession, is, is hurt the most deeply and that pain results in irrevocable change. Um, Larry, who is a decent guy when the film starts, turns into a cold, calculating man, mm-hmm. having sex at least you know on two occasions to Tom and Dan. Like, in the end, he wants to possess Anna not, not out of love, but because doing so means beating someone else. Yeah. Uh, but to paint Dan as guiltless as well is also unfair. He is a, a, a weasel, a very charming weasel, oh, yeah. but he's also an instigator, and he cheats without concern for repercussions. Dan is astounded when any of them actually impact him, when the consequences catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna is also fundamentally weak and dishonest uh, and she doles out and receives hurt in equal measure um, yeah, these are terrible people uh, bolstered by phenomenal performances yes. uh, and truly it is besides the script is the actors here get to shine and no one shines better brighter here than Clive Owen mm-hmm. and I think this is one of his big breakout roles yeah. um, you know uh, he, I think to this day, still likes a bit of household recognition, and I don't quite understand why. Clive Owen is a great actor, yeah. Uh, and he deserves, like, you know, the Oscar buzz that he got from here. Like. Yeah. Um, the ferocity with which he delivers his lines and the restless energy he imparts to Larry, and he is just electric in every scene that he's in. Uh, uh the two most riveting sequences here involve Owen and Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. Uh, one in an art gallery where they first meet, and the other in a strip club where he has all the money, but she has the power and uses yeah. it. You know, um, I think this is Portman's first truly adult role uh, uh, at this point. Yeah. Because um, if you keep in mind, um, I suppose the first truly adult role was as a child uh, in Leon the Professional. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as an adult, post-Queen Amidala, yeah. this is her first 
adult role and it's very very good and she did a lot to shed her queen amidala uh, uh pigeonhole here mm. uh you know um and uh the stink around the prequels like, shall we say um <laughs> was largely forgotten after she did this uh yeah this is this is great and it's a great essays about uh four different character studies about people who undergo a personality transformation yeah uh from from okay to like fairly terrible people uh and there's a rawness and courage to all of their performances that are that are great and those are the things that still stand out today even though um our memories of it are probably hold it in in higher uh hold it in a brighter light than it should have been yeah, like, absolutely, I guess. absolutely. Yeah. yeah yeah i i read that owen actually played dan's role in the play mm yes right? yeah and then he yeah. kind of swapped that so like that uh, that feels even more impressive um, mm-hmm. You know, just one. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Clive Owen doesn't get enough love for sure. I also yeah, I don't, I don't understand where it went wrong with him. He's he's handsome. He's tall. He's you know. He's I got an amazing voice. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like a lot of time when I say Clive Owen, right? People are like, oh, the guy in Closer, or oh, like he's like the the guy in Sin City, as mm-hmm. the detective thing. But you know, he doesn't get recognition for anything outside of that. Um, his best film, Children of Men, is like so underseen. It's yeah. quite sad, actually. Which, yeah. which we oh, have we talked about Children of Men? We've mentioned Children of Men, but we haven't discussed it at length. We talk about it a lot. The last time I mentioned Children of Men was talking about uh, Hawkeye in uh, you know the episode three scene of the cartoon. Yeah, uh, was obviously inspired by Children of Men. Oh no, okay, this is a weird segue. <laughs> but to 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 digress from um, this is this is a Clive Owen segue. To digress from um closer for a while, yes. Um, I recently read an interview with Bert and Bertie, who were, you know, the showrunners slash directors of Hawkeye, uh-huh. you know, and they were asked about the car chase in episode three, yeah. the one that is reminiscent of Children of Men. Yeah. And then they said, like, no, we've never seen Children of Men. That was oh, an inspiration for no. it. So did they name like, an inspiration for it? They did. It was the opening scene in Waves. Oh. You know, the one where they were, yeah. they were traveling through the highway and the camera goes around the car over and over again. Yeah. And it, it was such a, like, it made me very happy like, that they name drop Waves because I really love Waves and we've reviewed that also. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's just a, a whole side note. Sorry, back to Closer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, while we're talking about like um, Closer kind of being the, the, the template right, for all anti-Valentines that come after it, Jude Law mm. went on to play like several Dan-like characters mm. over the course of his career. Uh, going he got kind of typecast here. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of crazy. What was that one about him being the limo driver? Uh, oh, I know, I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, Elfie? Can't is think it called Elfie? Elfie. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Right? Which was like, basically, it's the same character, you know? Um, and it's kind of nuts that that he, mm-hmm. he did a whole series about that. Um, mm. Yeah, but Natalie Portman, great performance. Julia Roberts, like, a bit of a, a, a different kind of outing for her, um, character-wise as well. Yeah, speaking of shedding the stereotypes, Julia Roberts definitely shed her Pretty Woman oh, yeah. rom-com stereotype here. Yep. Um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the actors here, the big the big four here, I think particularly chose these roles because they didn't want to be playing good guys anymore. <laughs> yeah, like they wanted to show like a bit of like itch to them that they can play like anti heroes too. Yeah, yeah, I, I think definitely true for uh, Roberts and for Portman. Uh, mm. for what was Jude Law doing before that? Let me see. Uh, a bunch of stuff he was in, like the talent. Oh, you know what? I'm wrong. Elfie, AI. Elfie came up the same year as Closer. Oh wow! Okay, okay. 
and then he yeah. he plays Aeroflin in the Aviator, which is again the same kind of role. Um, mm, that's right, that's right. If you've seen the Young Pope, um, oh, also got actually weirdly, weirdly quite similar as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Uh, also, if you haven't seen The Nick, which is a great Steven Soderbergh uh, medical drama set in the 1900s, uh, starring Clive Owen, you should, because it's very good as I well. have not. Let me make a note of that. It's very good, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's only two seasons. It was on Cinemax, which is like the least heralded of any network. Uh, and Clive Owen gave a great performance in that that is very wasted. Uh, he plays like this very cutting-edge surgeon in ni- the 1900s, like 1905 or 1906, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's soundtrack to this very like techno futuristic score. Um, despite despite the fact that it's in the nineteen hundreds, because the surgical methods that he's pioneering are cutting edge for the time, like very futuristic, you know, like heart transplants and you know stuff like that. You know, like things that have never been done that he is doing. You know, so it made it seem very futuristic, although the setting was in the nineteen hundreds. Fascinating. So, yeah. that reminds me a bit of oh no, what was that anime called? Black. No, not Black Butler. Uh yeah, I'll I'll talk about it <laughs> But yes, All right, bro, I put it yeah. on my list of, of things to check out. Yeah. Awesome. Um and that was our four anti-Valentine's films. Um alongside a few notable mentions that we think you should check out. Mm-hmm. Um this is very early in February to give our February recommendations. So I don't know whether ISA has anything. Um for me in particular, like I have the uh, um, advantage of like watching things. Oh yeah, ahead of time. Prior, mm-hmm. ahead of time, so I can give some recommendations. But um, in in February, let's let's begin with you. Like, have you have you seen anything that you want to recommend or shout out for for Ooh, this month? Not really. I've just kind of been like trying to catch up on stuff that have that mm-hmm. was in January that we recommended that I haven't quite finished yet. So I sure. don't have anything okay. off the top of my head. So you can go ahead and go first. All right. Um, coming out at the end of January, uh, but still showing now, and will be opening next week at the Asian Film Archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can watch it on Amazon Prime. It's an Iranian film called A Hero, uh, which is just fantastic. Um, it is a film about this guy who's in jail because he owes someone a debt. That's what happens in Iran. Like if you owe someone a lot of money yeah. and you can't pay it back, you're sentenced to like a certain amount of time in jail if you cannot pay it back. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets out of jail for a couple of days uh, for for compassionate leave. Uh, someone in his family has passed away, so he's going to the funeral, right? Uh, he encounters a bag of money, like a bag of gold coins. Mm. Uh, he takes the bag of gold coins. Uh, he wants to sell it and repay his debt so he can get out of jail. But at the last moment, he changes his mind. He can't do it. So he, he puts out ads to return the money, uh, to return the purse to whoever lost uh-huh. it. So, someone comes forward takes back the bag and then people hear about this. Like he becomes a sort of social media cult hero, you know. Oh, this guy in prison is so honest. Uh, he could have paid back his own debt but then like, you know, he he returned the money uh, so he becomes a sort of cult hero. He appears on, you know, social media, on YouTube shows, on news shows, in newspaper clippings. He becomes like the talk of the town mm-hmm. and then social media digs into his past and then he, they find that he has done some very uh, unethical things in the past. Yeah. And then they start to claim that, oh, he made up the story about returning the bag. Like, he 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 just did it for the publicity. Like, he... Uh, this never actually happened. And because he never took the name and number of the person he returned it to, oh. everybody thinks he's lying. Mm-hmm. Um, this is 
the ultimate story of like no good deed goes unpunished mm-hmm. kind of and also the modern trend of like you see someone do something good on social media and then there's this immediate urge to tear them down by finding all the bad things they've ever done before in their life you know like you know it's it's weird it's really current right now because you know um you see a lot of that, lah. You know, a lot of people who've done good things on social media, and then you find out things about their past, and then suddenly you're like, "Oh, now this is a bad person," but not really. They're complicated persons. They've done good things and bad things. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a great look into Iranian society and social media in general in society, uh, anywhere around the world. Um, coming out this week mm-hmm. on all cinemas is Spencer, which is uh, a biopic about Princess Diana of Wales. Yeah. Um, it is. Played by she's played by Kristen Stewart, who gives an Oscar-worthy performance here, and I would be quite upset if she doesn't win the Oscar for Spencer. Mm-hmm. It is the most. If you think you've seen the story in 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 uh, the Crown season four, you have not. Uh, Spencer is for the most part loosely based on realism. Uh-huh. There, this is a very magic realist fable about a particular weekend for for Diana. In in uh, the house of Windsor, uh, over over the Christmas weekend, there are ghosts, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, it's all in her head, lah. But it's it's it plays out very much uh, as a magic realist fable, not so much as a real life biopic of Princess Diana. It's fantastic. Uh, she's haunted by the specter of Anne Boylan here in uh, <laughs> this film. And if you know the history of Anne Boylan, you probably understand why Diana relates to her. Yeah. Uh, the best film out right now on HBO Max, though, the best, one of the best films of the year, and I think will end up being in my top three, oh. is a movie called The Fallout, uh, which I don't see falling out of my favorites anytime soon. The Fallout is, uh, it stars Jenny Ortega, who is, uh, you may remember from You Season 2, she played the girl Ellie, oh. uh, and this girl called Maddie Ziegler. Uh, the Fallout is about the aftermath of a school shooting. Uh, and it is one of those Gen Z portraits that is not sensationalized or dramatized in the way that Euphoria is or mm-hmm. sex education or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, part of its heartbreaking nature and is its authenticity. Like it, it portrays Gen Z in the most real way I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's not, it's not, it's not Euphoria. Like, is what I'm saying. So it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to explain how it unpacks trauma. Yeah. Uh, or, po- or PTSD uh, without watching it because he does it in such a nuanced and subtle way. Uh, yeah, definitely check it out. The Fallout is one of my favorites of the year. Uh, Can you coming. Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah. Can you the soundtrack? Yeah, yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, soundtrack. Very, very good. Um, there is also one other film coming out next week called Parallel Mothers, which is the new film from Pedro Almodovar. It is also very good. Uh, yes, I, I like this a lot. Parallel Mothers is coming out on the 17th of Feb okay, in Singapore cinemas, particularly, particularly in short theaters and the projectors. So yeah, um, definitely um, highlighting that. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is back for season four mm-hmm. in the, at the end of the month. Uh, I've seen the first three episodes. It is very good. Um, what else? Um, Okay, Severance, I'll talk about in April. Uh, it's my favorite show of the year so far. Um, I don't think I've mentioned Somebody Somewhere, which is my favorite new show of the year so far. Uh-huh. Uh, not counting Station Eleven, which is technically a 2021 show. Yeah. Uh, Somebody Somewhere is a very One Mississippi-esque show. Oh. Uh, and I really, really love it. It's about this girl named Sam, who is just very... She's in her 40s and she's aimless and she doesn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she makes a gay friend and decides to sing in a choir um yeah it uh, there's really nothing plot wise going on but it's such a great 
uh, portrait of an unconfident, aimless woman. Yeah. Uh, that feels very relatable to anyone who's ever felt aimless and unconfident. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's all my recommendations for the month of February. Uh, and also shout out, um, I spent my Sunday watching the whole first season plus the special plus the two movies of Violet Evergarden, which I finally oh, watched. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, really, really great. Finally, finally got the hype. Yeah, yeah. Um, it takes a while. Very, I, it takes a while. It, it does. It does take a while. I must say, I didn't like the. I thought the second film was very good, but I thought it could have been edited better. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I really loved the, it. I think he had too, the, too many flashbacks. The, the second half felt a bit convoluted. And I'm mm. wondering if it's because, like, they needed to... I, I, I don't know. There was something about... Um, the kind of res- no spoilers for anyone, but like you know the kind of resolution that they were trying to they, that didn't have its enough weight on its own that it required a lot more help um, mm. for us just, just to kind of fill in. Um, but yeah, mm. I, I I definitely see your point for that for sure. Yeah, yeah. It also had this very like Matrix Resurrections vibe <laughs> where it spent like half the film like showing you flashbacks of things you saw in the series, yeah. um, which I thought were very unnecessary. Like. It's a, it's a very anime style of hand-holding like, that I don't yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought Violet Evergarden was better than that. Uh, and it was in the first movie, but apparently in the second movie, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, the first movie uh, was... But I suppose the second movie... Mm-hmm. Very good. I liked it. Eternity and um, Auto Memory Yes, love that. was very good. I liked that more than the second mm-hmm. one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I suppose the second one came out so long after the series that perhaps, you know, it, it, they were worried that people yeah. didn't remember. And also because I think for anime movies in general, that a lot of the time they expect new audiences to only come to see the film, mm, right? Based upon the right, And, you know, that's part and parcel of the thing. Like, we get it with any sort of, like, big anime movie that comes in, right? When there's a very popular franchise, you have the fans that come in and then those fans will bring friends, um, mm-hmm. you know, as some, some kind of like a communal experience. So I'm guessing that's why it almost always happens. Um, yep. but yeah definitely for especially for you if you binged it like totally mm. not necessary yeah 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 definitely yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah um, do keep your eye out and watch The Fallout which is my number one recommendation yes uh, number two recommendation is Parallel Mothers by Pedro Almodovar which uh, I'll be watching again next week yeah uh, and also shout out to A Hero from Iran and Spencer which May not be a perfect movie, but features a perfect performance mm. by someone who I did not think was as good as Robert Pattinson, but I now think is as good as Robert Pattinson. Fascinating. Uh, Kristen Stewart, yeah. It's amazing that the Twilight duo have become like indie darlings in yeah. the 2010s. Yeah. Great. Good for them. Like, good for Kristen Stewart. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry I doubted you. Uh, yeah. And that is it for this episode of Behold. We will be back uh, in a few weeks for a new episode of Genre Equality yep. where we'll be talking about what are we talking about? Uh, for uh, we're one? talking about Batman. Oh, no, no, no. That's uh, We are talking about Book of Boba Fett. Book of Boba Fett is uh, about to end tomorrow, actually, yes. as of this recording. Uh, uh, as well as Peacemaker, The Legend of Vox Machina. Uh, I still will be talking about Demon Slayer in the Entertainment District. Yes, I which I'm also Which I'm also watching, so I might chime in yes. there as well. Uh, I'll be talking about The Return of Saga, which is one of the most popular comic books of modern in modern memory. Yes. Uh, it's back after a 3.5-year hiatus. Um, man, about time, Brian K. Vaughan, and I'll be talking about a new book I read called 13 Stories, as well as season two of Raised by Wolves, mm-hmm. uh, Roland Emmerich's ridiculous film where the moon falls onto the earth <laughs> called Moonfall. 
Um, and a new K-drama zombie thing called All of Us I, Are Dead, I which ca- is... I caught, okay. I caught that too. Uh, I've Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it when it comes out. Yeah, so. it's, it's okay. Yeah. 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 Um, till next time, though, this has been Hit Zero. Bye, sir. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.